Welcome to Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk about big ideas in education and hardly ever come up with any ideas. I'm uh, uh, I, I'm your host, Mike Walmart. Uh, my co-host, Andrew Schwab, uh, once again is MIA, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll muddle along without him. Um, since he rarely asks any questions anyway, we'll, we'll probably be fine. But uh, we're really excited today to have uh, a, a guest with a, with a tremendous insight and an important aspect of what's happening in education, um, Snehal Patel, who's the founder and CEO of Sokicom, a, uh, an online math, game, and instructional software that uh, is becoming increasingly popular in schools because it keeps kids engaged in, in learning basic math skills. Snehal, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, excited to be here. So um, I, I'm curious, you know, right off the bat, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to get involved in this and, and your work that led to uh, to building Sokicom. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm, I'm going to kind of start off by giving you kind of the, the whole history here so you can kind of understand what built it up to uh, the development of Sokicom. So, um, Born in the the UK and moved to the US when I was really young. I was like a year old, um, and for the first uh, several years, it was actually because it keeps kids engaged in, in learning. Undocumented. Um, Thanks for joining us. For uh, oh, I'm getting some uh, feedback. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you, Mike. Uh, excited to be keep moving here. Sorry, um, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, right second. off the bat, tell us a little bit about yourself. And, and oh. how you came to get in. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, I was playing the uh, podcast at the same time as recording it, so I had to uh, oh. shut that off. <laughs> okay. For the first several years, uh, we were actually undocumented um, in the, the U.S. Not many people know that about me. Um, and uh, we moved to moved a, a lot. So by the time I was uh, 17 different cities, and uh, I, I got to really experience uh, what classrooms are like all across the country. And you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me, and, and something that I, I noticed, um, was that uh, in in math, especially, um, that uh, uh, it was an area that students struggled with. Um, and not only students, you know, in my elementary years, I remember. I lived in Florida and Texas and California and Arizona and in different classrooms. And it was an area that uh, teachers themselves um, showed some level of anxiety or uncomfortability with. And I remember that uh, as an elementary student and sort of that that stuck with me through through high school. I ended up being a for a part time job. I was a, a, a tutor um, my junior and senior year in high school. Um, I graduated, then went to Arizona State University, um, got my degree in computer science, and e even there as a, as a part-time job, I, I loved uh, tutoring and, and helping kids in math, um, and ended up becoming an engineer at uh, Motorola and wanted to continue pursuing this interest in, in education, and so I got involved with uh, um, a math tutoring company, and at the same time, I got my uh, uh, credential to uh, to teach. and. Uh, began working with uh, a, a lot of students, kind of K through 12, and it was through that that uh, I uh, started also working with uh, the Roosevelt School District, uh, and I taught as a 
intervention and after-school math teacher there, um, South Phoenix area, uh, and you know, in terms of the student population, so I was there close to four years, and um, in terms of student population, it's like a hundred, uh, nearly hundred percent free and reduced uh, lunch at the two schools that I work with, um, and uh, uh, almost hundred uh, percent EO population um, as well. So really kind of tough uh, population, uh, at-risk population that um, had uh, an occurrence there that really kind of uh, made me sit back and sort of think about things. Uh, so we were working with uh, students in small groups and like primarily um, grades one through six and uh, about a couple of weeks into our uh, tutoring program. And this was a program that we were uh, going to the schools um, after school and we would uh, be there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, from 2.30 to 4, there was uh, a fourth grade girl that was ditching school, um, but would actually come to school from 2.30 to 4 to attend our tutoring program. So wait a second, the, the student would ditch regular school and then come after school to get the tutoring? To the same school, uh, and this is a fourth grade girl, yes, and that happened for about two weeks, and I know about it, but... Uh, her classmates um, called her out. It's like, hey, you weren't in school again. This is like the second week. And after that, I was like, whoa, this is like, uh, you know, it's both fascinating and it's concerning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I knew her teacher. I was working with her teacher. And she had something like 35 or 36 students. This is a fourth grade teacher with that many students. Um on, on some of the days, the students would have to sit on the carpet. So uh, teachers really doing as much as she, you know, humanly could. Um, didn't have much technology. This is back in uh, 2006 and 2007. Um, and, you know, the, the I, I talked with the, the girl, really wanted to find out what it was, you know, about our program that um, got her to get off her butt from home and walk all the way to the school just for that hour and a half. And we incorporated kind of two key things that I think made a, a big difference for her. One was um, we did a lot of team-based, a lot of sort of like social learning activities um, where there were uh, things that uh, students were individually responsible for, but there was also this like group and team element to that. Um, and we did that in a way um, that uh, utilize a lot of games, uh, whether it was card games or board games. Uh, we didn't use that many video games at that point, but uh, I think those two key things were very compelling um, and it was very motivating to her. Uh, so, so that really just uh, was something that caused me to think a lot about education and it caused me to question, you know, how many other kids in our country um, are turning their, their minds off uh, in, in the classroom. Maybe they're not going to the extreme as this student did where it's completely ditching school, but maybe they're powering their minds down. Um, so, so how much of that is actually happening? And, you know, what can we do to, 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 to help, you know, improve that? And yeah. um, I'm, I'm willing to bet, uh, you know, from your description, two things that come to mind. The first one is that the kids were kind of universally actively engaged in doing something. And you could contrast that with what I'd almost guarantee was going on in the classroom. And that is where the students kind of sat passively and just watched or listened to the teacher kind of demonstrate things. And then they pass out a worksheet that's supposed to uh, allow the kids to master the concept. 
and and obviously the student you're talking about would vastly prefer to be actively involved in working with other students and, and that sort of thing. It's not like she hated school. She just hated to go to a class where she didn't get to do anything that seemed meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's evidenced by her actually coming back to school, right? I mean, that's uh, right. uh, yeah. proof that it's not the school that, that the student is hating. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, this student uh, kind of really made it uh, just through her actions uh, showed like how uh, I think had the student not ditched, it wouldn't have like uh, uh, affected me as much and it wouldn't uh, have caused me to really sit and think about it. I remember going home and driving and there was traffic and I was just couldn't stop thinking about that. I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. Right. Um, and I very much remember that. But um, that that got me to uh, really think deeply and critically about, you know, what we were doing in the, the classroom. And I started looking at some research behind game-based learning um, and social learning and things like that. And um, I found that um, you know, there's a growing body of research and work uh, supporting game-based learning and, and serious games. Um, the Department of Defense uh, has been doing some work on that. There have been some published papers uh, on that, I think, since the, the 90s. Um, on games being used for um, sort of like life and death training situations and, and, and a lot of uh, good research showing that um, games have been shown to uh, improve uh, learning um, as much or more than sort of like controlled traditional learning techniques. Uh, so there's a lot of promise um, and a lot of excitement. And so that... Uh, really excited me. I got together with a couple of uh, researchers, uh, Dr. Gary Bitter at Arizona State University. Um, he's a lifetime uh, NCTM um, Achievement Award winner and uh, renowned uh, math and uh, ed, ed tech guy, uh, as well as Dan Roy from MIT. Uh, then later, Dr. Teddy Chow, uh, who's now at Ohio State. And so we uh, began kind of working together and put some proposals to Department of Education, and that ended up sort of starting uh, SOCICOM. So how did you find, you, you found um, Dr. Bitter and, and the other guys through your research, or did you know them already? Uh, no, it's a, a great question. I um, I just, you know, went online and I started looking up stuff and I started doing, you know, my own investigation and I saw some of the people that have been writing in the space and um, have been working actively in this space. And then I uh, proactively reached out to them. Uh, Dan Roy at MIT, I met him at the uh, GLS conference in Madison, Wisconsin. There's the Games Learning Society conference um, there that's been going on for a uh, maybe close to a decade now, uh, and uh, th that's really brought together a lot of minds um, that have been uh, in the serious games or game-based learning space, so I, I met uh, I met him there. Cool. So you formed SOCICOM, and yep. one of the things that um, that I think is, is really important for people to, uh, to understand is that at the same time you were writing 
the the program and you were kind of developing what it is that kids would be doing, you were kind of backing that up with an ongoing sort of action research approach. You've you've got um, work that you do to see how the kids perform at the same time that they're playing the games and and doing the activities that you've got set up. Was was that part of the original design of what you did, or did that come kind of later on? Um, that's a, a great question, Mike, and uh, is something that we're going to be publishing a, a paper on just this uh, this whole process of developing a uh, education technology product using a, a iterative research-based way. And so um, we, we had our original sort of product design and the research design, um, but even at a higher level above that, if you think about it this way, um, we had a framework that we operated under. And that framework um, was uh, iteration. We had these different stages of iterations. We, you know, first we would test out a MVP or a minimum viable product based on some of the research and based on some of our initial findings. Um, but instead of sort of developing that out, spending six months or a year developing out and then testing it, sort of like what we see in traditional research, um, what we did is we spent as little time as possible and then we put it in front of actual people. And we put it in front of it. students. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and we actually use that to get to the state, next stage. So the first stage is like the, the developer, the MVP. The next stage is to measure. You know, when we, when we put it out there, we actually have these hypotheses. Uh, and the hypotheses could be that um, students um, are engaged when uh, learning about fractions with common denominators, for instance, or that they understand that one whole, um, when decomposed into two parts, you know, is uh, uh, both parts are equal and, uh, you know, each is a half. And, and sort of we come up with these different hypotheses and then we test those. And that's where the measurement stage comes in. And mm. on how we do, uh, on the measurements that we collect, both qualitative, quantitative, um, we test those against the hypotheses, and then we get to this final stage, which is the learn. So it's sort of a three-stage process. And that learn is we look at that data, we go back to the drawing board, and we're like, okay, what did we learn from this? What are the next set of hypotheses that we want to create? Um, and, you know, is that going to change anything in this original design? And then um, based on that, we then go back to the uh, software development phase and come up with another MVP. And so we go through this three-stage process. And we've gone through it hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, just in the first uh, two years, we did over 100 classroom um, tests where we would go into different classrooms um, observe how they were using SOGICOM and then with all these different kind of hypotheses. Interesting. So this thing has obviously evolved over time. Have you tracked uh, kids' performance on, I don't know, some exterior benchmark or do you give the kids a quiz and see how they do on like fractions or uh, you know, some sort of math problem division or whatever? How do you measure um, the the engagement and what's going on within the game with the students' conceptual understanding of these concepts 
outside of the the software and the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and that's a interesting sort of uh, challenge there. Um, the, the way that we approach that has been, um, and, and what they can provide is sort of these uh, immersive visual for students, and it really lends itself to strong conceptual um, uh, development of skills. Mm-hmm. Um, um, good number sense and, and, and those type of things. And so um, the way that we designed our games and, and you know, based on some of the constructivist uh, um, learning theories and experiential learning, really learning by doing sort of things that um, it was developing these uh, conceptual um, skills. And so um, we were able to measure that internally. Uh, for example, like let's say when we would have students start a particular level in our fraction game. And this level um, dealt with uh, understanding uh, equivalency of fractions. So the equivalent, the equivalency of uh, eighths to fourths to halves. Um, and uh, what we would do is that we would test, uh, and there were I think 10 or 12 questions in this uh, particular uh, game level. Uh, all the students started off, and then what we would do is we would um, measure by the time that they got to the, 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 the final question and they completed it, um, how many of the students were able to complete it without making any mistakes, um, how many students uh, made mistakes, how much time did they take on the questions. Um, we looked at a lot of data. We also looked at um, uh, if students got uh, you know stuck and if they were, so th- those are some of the quantitative things. Qualitatively, we would look at if they, if their eyes got off their screen, if they were wandering around, and if they were, then what what prompted that? Uh, was there anything in the game that prompted that? And so a couple of things that if uh, students don't know what to do, if they're confused, um, that, you know, th- there's this uh, loss of engagement. Uh, if they don't know sort of what the next step is, um, that's from an interface and mechanic standpoint. Um, you know, that's one area that you can lose engagement. Another area is if a student doesn't feel that they're capable um, or uh, that it's not really uh, uh, possible, let's say, for, for them to, to figure this thing out, um, uh, that there's this sort of just detachment and, and disengagement there. So, um, yeah, if it's just something that's out of the realm of what they feel they can achieve. Uh, so those are kind of two areas and reasons that we saw them uh, disengaging. Uh, because it was gamey, um, I think the interest factor was um, it, 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 like really high. Uh, and, and we did some testing initially, paper prototype and things like that to make sure that it was really interesting. Um, but that's definitely another factor. Too, that if the interest isn't there, then you lose engagement. But that yeah. was that was uh, any of the reasons that we uh, got much engagement. Yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe for for folks that, that haven't seen the platform or they're, they're not really familiar with it, uh, let's assume that I'm a, a typical fourth grade student and I'm going to log into Sokicom. What, what am I going to see? What am I going to do? What, what's happening on screen or inside the software and how do I engage with it? Can you, can you paint a picture of, you know, what the experience is going to be for, say, a typical fourth grade student? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after fourth grade school, let's say, logs in, uh, they have their unique username, password, and then they see in front of them, uh, they'll see the map of the SOKICOM world. So we've separated our teams into um, common core domains. And uh, each of the domains sort of appears as a different region on the world. Okay. Um, and in a, that there are sort of at the top of the reward mechanisms that students get. Um, so a majority of the area is on the map. They'll have uh, rewards that they can see. Cash, and then there are there are um, levels of experience. And just by hovering or clicking over any of them, you can find out, find out uh, what those levels are. But the initial deal is it's very, uh, very cool. It looks just like a entertainment type of a casual game that a student um, maybe uh, going so, on and using. Kind of like some an adventure game or something where there's different areas that I can go explore and that kind of thing. Can I go to any yeah, yeah. one of those areas, or do I have to start in one part of the world and kind of move in an orderly way through it? Uh, yeah, good question. No, and we had a lot of like, design discussion about this, and one of the key things we wanted to let students have is a level of autonomy. Um, and so uh, they they have the ability. Students do have the ability to select any any um, region or any math domain that they want to. Um, yeah. The other element that I didn't discuss is what students will see right when they log in is uh, the app. Um, and um, it's a sort of just a small avatar to get some customizations on it. Uh, there's a, a lot more customizations that they can earn through uh, progressing in that. And one of the sort of interesting things here, interesting thing that we've seen is that the, the, there's a lot of the kind of casual systems out there where there are avatars. And when, when students are given like all the options and everything for avatars, they tend to get tired of them really soon. But in systems where it really incorporates like a, an, a role-playing game, element, element, uh, where, where the advanced uh, items or characteristics and things like that need to be earned uh, seems to have uh, higher attachment with, uh, with the users and with the learners. So there's some motivation about them accumulating whatever the rewards are, points or objects or um, whatever. Um, and, and I mean, it's, anybody who's played games, and you know, kids love to level out. They love to accumulate things and do kind of that, that sort of thing. So it makes perfect sense that that's what they do in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, let's say we go into one part of the world. Um, kids go through a sort of instructional thing, um, or how, how do they, um, let's say it's on, I don't know, fractions. Mm -hmm. You've got a sequence of, uh, of challenges they've got to um, complete so that they can get the conceptual stuff. Then do they do anything with that? Do they quiz? Do they 
how, how do they demonstrate proficiency within the game so that they can, you know, level out at, at whatever level they're on? Yep. Yeah. And let me explain one other step that goes before that, uh, Mike, is that uh, let's say when a student, let's say, selects the fraction, uh, once they enter that, they don't have the choice to either do a individual or team-based activity. Um, we recommend, we recommend to, that, that they guide their students guide their the individual aspect. Now, now uh, the first thing that they'll be asked to do on the individual or the single-player portion is to take a placement assessment. Um, now, the placement assessment is a, a great agnostic series of questions that starts really at the kindergarten level and then gets up to like a seventh or eighth grade level of difficulty. Hmm. It's just specific to a single math level. Um, now, the, the, the cool thing with that is that and what we found in, in, our, in, our, um, in our research, and it's probably just common sense, is that um, the students, even if they're performing thing, uh, not so well in math, that doesn't necessarily mean that they um, uh, aren't proficient uh, in all the math domains. Many times, uh, students, and this is sort of like Gardner's multiple uh, where, where uh, some students will students be like visual thinkers, and so they'll do better in geometry than right. they do um, operations and algebraic thinking. Something more abstract, yeah. Right. Um, and, um, and, and I think there, there's a whole other aspect to this. Um, and full disclosure, I, you know, we, in my district, we piloted this with some kids um, last spring. And I was fascinated to watch while the kids are working on their individual work and maybe group work within the class and they're teaming up and they're doing the activities and stuff. There's another component to this that the kids really, really liked. And that is that um, the kids in one class can kind of compete with the kids in another class. And it doesn't even matter if they're at the same grade level or if they're working on the same sort of topic and, and, and concepts. Um, and talk a little bit about how you've set that up so that there's uh, the opportunity for kids to kind of reach outside the classroom and, and kind of go head-to-head -head with another group. That The kids found that to be loads of fun. Yep. Um, and so that's uh, that second part of play where instead of the individual, they'll select the, select the team base. Now, the way the team base games work, um, it's similar to if you go to Yahoo games and you want to play chess with someone. Like you, you can either create a new game or join and join um, hmm. And then teachers can select whether to have it possibly uh, protected if they only want students within their classroom to play or it's sort of open. Um, and and it, it uses sort of the, the, the red team versus the blue team model, model where each team can be, can be up to 16 students. So in, in one game, you can have up to 32 students and then have a number of those games going on. Now, now to get like games where you where you got uh, uh, multiple classrooms, different grade levels, the way that we accomplish that is that uh, students um, are, are working individually in the multiplayer game with knowledge of what they're 
uh, teammates are doing. And in some cases, they can help their teammates out by uh, sending them a or if they're sitting next to each other to each other to strategize, there are team bonuses that can be earned. Um, uh, when students are working individually, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a measurement and data game. And on the measurement and data, the multiplayer, uh, students can select the level of difficulty for their next question. And, and they get to uh, select if they want to work on a math-related question, length-related question, uh, and things like that. So that autonomy allows a, a, a second or third grader to be working on easier questions, where a sixth grader could choose to work on harder questions. Or it could be, you know, the other way around. Beyond grade level, they could be working on the harder ones, or the sixth grader could be working on easier ones. Um, now, the uh, incentive structure is set up so that, um, so that students don't just work on the easy ones um, because, you know, they may be able to get more points uh, if they end up working on the harder ones, even though they take a little bit longer. Right. They sort of had to do this calculation. Can I get uh, more easy questions done? Done? Or more hard questions done, or can they mix it up? And what we find is, which what's kind of cool is, is depending on the type of question, it may lend itself to being done easier on a high difficulty versus other questions that are longer. And it's sort of just sort of just strategy part. That's cool. So the kids not only are they working on the math and trying to solve the problems, but they've also got this this overlaying strategic element where they've got to figure out what's the best strategy for earning the maximum number of points. Choose a whole bunch of really easy questions or, or focus on a fewer number of harder questions where when you get them right, you get more points. Um, the, the, the ability for the kids to kind of choose that, I think, is, is really engaging for them and highly motivating. It's fun to watch them when they do it. Yeah. Um, and just wanted to make another point there. What else we found uh, with this, Mike, was that when we had students uh, do a multiplayer game with the entire class, and this was key. Like we saw when there were multiplayer games with two or three or four students, that was still engaging. But when it was the entire classroom, um, not only did we see just a, a ton of engagement, uh, you know, students jumping up and down and that sort of thing, but the thing was that that actually led to more time spent individually by students outside of the classroom. Interesting. So, yeah, so it sort of like led to this uh, like social obligation. It's like I'm a part of this part of this, and I've, I've experienced you know, my contribution, and that makes me feel more obligated or responsible to improve myself. So you're, it's, it's sort of like, um, it's, it's sort of like you're, you're trying to leverage the commitment that the kids have to learning these math concepts because they know that when they go back and they join the rest of their team, their contribution is going to be important and they don't want that to, to get shortchanged. That's, uh, that's a, I think a, a really key element of, of why this sort of environment works. 
everybody knows if you spend more time focusing and concentrating and working on something, you're going to get better at it. Um, and, and what, what this has done is kind of leverage that in a way that, uh, the traditional chapter questions and worksheets just doesn't seem to get for most kids. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives them like almost like this sense of, uh, higher level purpose that, that their improvement isn't only going to impact them, but it's going to impact their team's ability to win. Right. Yeah, neat. Um, and, and for those of you um, who are watching who haven't had a chance to check out SokiCom um, or similar math-based games, I highly recommend that you do so. But Snehal, um, you actually participated in something that I want to spend some time talking about. I'm, I'm really curious to hear. You just got back from the White House and yep. uh, a conference basically on gamification. T tell us about that and um, what, what was the conversation? How did it go? I mean, how the heck did you get invited? I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. My, I was talking to my mom this morning, and she was like, how did you get invited to the White House? <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was uh, really cool. It was, uh, you know, humbling just uh, being there and going through all the security. Wow, I'm actually in the White House. And um, I was invited. invited uh, Department of Education. Um, they're the Institute of Education Sciences. SOCOM won a number of grants from computer sciences that SOCOM is considered as kind of the leading, not the leading, leading um, um, project that the Institute of Education Sciences has, has funded. Now, because it's a government entity, they're you know, they can't, they can't sponsor or they can't or they market or advertise, advertise uh, anything. Um, but but it was, uh, it felt like a privilege. We were invited from, uh, and the the purpose of it, um, I sort of just kind of went with this understanding that hey, uh, uh, people at the leadership level, at the executive level, uh, have an interest in games uh, for learning, and they want to bring in maybe some of the experts. In the field, uh, from uh, uh, not only a research side, but taking from research to implementation to scale, scale, and, and kind of doing all that. Bring some experts. But I was, uh, I was uh, very, very pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised at people. Uh, um, at the executive level, were there the enthusiasm was showing? Um, uh, Jim Shelton, who he's got a, a super long title, advisor to the president in the White House, technology, uh, something, something, something. Uh, but he was there. Mark Delora, Delora, I think the director of White House uh, Office of Science and Technology. Uh, Policy, Russell Sealing, the director of STEM at Department of Education, and just a number of other folks over there. And to actually hear them talk about games that they've played and how they feel about 
uh, game-improving learning. I mean, that, that really took it to another level, another level. They can actually talk about games like uh, Dragon Box um, or, or other games that they've sort of come across and really uh, see potential potential for, uh, for uh, impacting students. So from those conversations, though, what what's your take? Is um, is this something that is obviously there's a level of interest at the government level, but from the standpoint of uh, changing pedagogy or changing curriculum, is is there conversation about expanding exposure to these sorts of ideas? Are there are there methodologies that people talked about for getting more of this research and more of this uh, sort of conceptual work going? Um, is it going to be done in, in private endeavors, sort of like what you've done with SOKICOM, or are they going to involve school districts and universities? How, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, one that was talked about, um, which is something that, you know, I would hear all like yourself and other leaders, you know, districts across the U.S., just looking at uh, education compared to all the other um, sort of agencies in, in the U.S. Now, uh, looking at uh, the Department of Defense or the National Institute of Health, the Department of Energy, um, and I think the total 11 agencies, I think the agency that spends the least on R&D yes. Education. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's like, I mean, like, it makes no sense. But so that that was you know, a startling statistic there. Just the yeah. lack of well, dollars. And, you know, I think I shared it with you before talking with uh, Jim Block at at UC Santa Barbara, who who's been a long-standing proponent of um, methodologies to increase engagement with kids. In a conversation I had with him, he said he was really disappointed because just the research on student engagement you're not finding it in education journals anymore. You're finding it in the gaming research. Um, and it's, it's, it's the gaming industry that is spending more time looking at engagement and the elements of that and what it takes to keep people engaged. It's all coming from the gaming industry. It's not coming from education. There's no work being done on it. I, I, I find that kind of disappointing. Yeah, and it, it is disappointing, and it, it uh, I think it stems from just a lack of lack of dollars and um, yeah. in that rising to me. Um, it also makes me realize how you know some of the, that little aren't funding that the Department of Education has. The process, but yeah, we're, we're yeah, we feel really fortunate. That that. Um, so of course, you know, I advocated um, along with others, others how important that R and D So we talked about kind of some of the things that are, are needed. Are needed. Um, obviously, more important research, research, um, and, and showing how teams can the efficacy, but how how can really be integrated into classroom practice. practice. Um, yeah, and personally, one of the things that I've, I've learned, Mike, Mike um, that there, even some of these university projects, like uh, at the UCLA, at the Crest Center, 
uh, I spoke with uh, Dr. Greg Chung. You know, they did a, a multi-year randomized control trial study. Saw pretty impressive effect size on a fraction game. Uh, but there's a lot of these studies that have been, um, you know, aren't, there's not there's done after that. Hmm. And uh, so the, the the universities are in fact then doing at least some level of research, but it doesn't get much farther than the research project is what you're saying. It's it's not getting back into the classroom in ways that teachers can incorporate it into what they're doing. Yep. But, yep. Which, I don't know, speaking as a practitioner, that would kind of be an essential element of the whole process if we're really going to try to make some changes in curriculum. Um, which, again, you know, the, the work that you've done and the research has led to something that gets into the classroom. It's kind of disappointing that there isn't more of that. Yeah, and it's, uh, it is disappointing. And I see sort of like this chasm, but there's, there's majority of the funding goes to like the academia, academia, university level research, research is very, very important. But then there really did, there needs to be this bridge on taking that to the next level or, or have more funding into programs like SKIR. Actually, fund both, or three things. It funds the development of something based on research. Having, having research studies done on and then taking that to classroom and making it sustainable. Mm -hmm. so, so having more programs like that. Now, the, the other side of things, um, outside of the Department of Education, I've seen a number of uh, technology products, including games, that are getting developed, um, but are really struggling to sustain themselves, um, and you know, this might not be a surprise, but K twelve is an incredibly, incredibly tough and difficult market uh, mm -hmm. to to build a company in. And and, and there's a, just a, a yard full of dozens of cool, awesome products that never were able to sustain themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, a lot of that, I, I think there's two reasons for that. One of them, obviously, is funding from the school standpoint. Um, but the other one is there's a tremendous amount of inertia in more traditional ways of teaching. And, and these things, um, they tend to be viewed as, a, as something that gets tacked on to the end of you know, a hundred years worth of traditional pedagogy instead of throwing out this old stuff that, I mean, the elephant in the room is we all know that stuff doesn't work and it hasn't worked for a long, long time. It works for the top few percentile, but I mean, let's be honest, those kids, they're going to learn anyway. It's, it's that larger middle and um, tail end of the bell-shaped curve group that, that really kind of gets shortchanged in those sorts of old school pedagogies. Um, these ideas are ones that have to replace them, not supplement them. And I think it's really tough for schools to kind of um, step out and, and do those sorts of things. I, I, I wonder if that was part of the conversation at the White House. Um, 
in, in terms of what it's like in a traditional classroom and how these things get integrated. That was one of the criticisms I had in the, there was maybe about uh, 30 or so folks and then some uh, uh, people from the White House and the Department of Ed. Um, but there weren't that many um, active practicing teachers um, or, or educators there. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, I think that was one of the, the missing elements that I knew that they had there. But on a, on a um, similar note, what the White House is doing, they, they very much want to increase the awareness of uh, teams as a viable learning community. And uh, one of the things that they're talking about doing, and they seem really excited major nationwide competition a year from now. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this. They never said, never said I wasn't, so uh -oh. I'm just talking about it. <laughs> but uh, okay. but uh, you know, essentially what they want to do is they want to have a um, game uh, competition for, for students to complete um, a billion, with a B, uh, questions in STEM games. Wow. Spread yep. out through all of the elements of STEM, or anybody can kind of pick and choose where they want this to go, um, or have they talked that far through it yet? That's yep. that's a huge that's a huge data set. Yes, yeah, it, it absolutely is, and it's uh, you know a headline that will get uh, the press and things like that. So what we were there is sort of hammering out some of the nuts and bolts. Um, how could something like that even take place on a national level? Um, the logistics, you know, how would teachers uh, sign up? Um, you know, what would the vetting process be for games? What type of data would be collected? And all sorts of things like that. So were you, um, in, in terms of representing, you know, SOCICOM, were you invited there? Um, to, to sort of uh, explain how you would incorporate a game like SokiCom, or was it uh, a conversation to create a whole new environment or a whole new game that's all around these STEM questions? What What's the view of, of what your involvement in this whole thing would be? Yeah, so there were two things. First, they wanted to know um, how, how we were able to start. We were out of, I think, about 150 uh, projects that the Department of Ed has funded um, maybe in the last decade in the SBR program, we're either the top one or two in terms of the number of students that we've reached across the, the country. So they wanted to know, you know uh, what was our secret sauce, what did we do, and that sort of thing. Uh -huh. um, and, um, and then they wanted to just hear my feedback Mike, on this this whole notion of this uh, billion questions, you know, how, how could the uh, how could a competition like that you know, uh, take place? Like, what, what what stuff would need to get set up? So they wanted to get input from me as well as uh, several other folks, right? Uh, that have games. If if the government is serious about that, Snehal, that, that that is a monumental sort of shift. 
in terms of moving away from even kind of the common core sort of ideas and um, into into a whole different realm of what learning would look like. Yeah, and, and I was uh, incredibly excited. Now they were uh, uh, very because it's you know federal. It's a Department of Education. They can't be um, sort of like pushing it. Uh, so uh, you know they're going to need the help of uh, partners and other uh, groups uh, to to help them, and then you know they will guide and steer things. Um, and and I think that uh, one of the groups that that they were discussing was the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, and there is a actually Russell Schilling, the director of STEM at the U.S. Department of Education, he wrote a blog post. In the, uh, Clinton Global Initiative um, blog, uh, just about this idea of a billion questions. I think, um, and I can share that with you so you can kind of see um, what the thoughts are brewing at that level. But yeah, it does seem very serious. You want to do something like this, and their timeline is they want to do something here, and you know, realistically, probably a year. Wow. Even a year. I mean, that that's there's a lot there's a lot behind making something like that work. Um, yep. Yeah, share the share the blog post and, and we'll post it on the um, we'll post it on the website um, so people can uh, check that out. So um, just back to SnowkeyCom, what what's next? Where where is this going? Uh, is it always going to be just math? Are you guys looking at other? Uh, um, other contents. What what's next? Yeah, so we're definitely looking at other uh, content, um, but there's still so much more to do on math, but, but not only math, but more so on like I think this larger level challenge is showing how games can effectively be implemented in the classroom instruction. Mm-hmm. I feel we're just at the surface of that because some of these things that we talked about, the, the whole multiplayer gaming and things like that, all, although it's very cool, it, it's hitting teachers, uh, uh, most teachers, like, okay, how, how do I actually, how does this fit into my open sequence? And, and there's so many questions that come out of that. And um, I think it's, it's just going to require a lot of, uh, working with teachers who are sort of mavericks. There's some in your district that use SOKICOM for full group instruction or direct instruction. Right. And and that was a conversation that a lot of teachers had last year was, you know, taking it past sort of a supplemental thing where the kids do their traditional work and then they do this, but actually using this as the method of delivering instruction, uh, whole group, small group, um, and, and even some talk about using it in in a uh, response to intervention sort of environment too, um, which, like I said before, this is a radical departure from the traditional sort of pedagogy, and then you just tack a game on the end as a reward for the kids that, you know, quote, did their homework or whatever. Yep, yep, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, we're seeing similar things like, uh, in, in other areas of the country 
where teachers just have begun using parts of SOKICOM for other parts of their, uh, their lesson. And we really want to uh, learn about that a lot more and a lot more. Learn about where, um, they're using it. And, and um, I, I think that's the way to um, understand how SOKICOM in particular can be more helpful to teachers and the strategies that they can use. Um, um, for, for example, this recent grant that we won is essentially around that. It's around taking some uh, existing platforms and just for third grade to uh, develop uh, an entire sort of third grade curriculum hmm. that has uh, pre-planning tools for teachers, that has um, uh, ability for teachers, especially at the third grade level, um, elementary teachers teachers themselves don't consider themselves as math teachers. Right. And, and, and them the ability to actually go through the lesson, um, aid in their own kind of content pedagogical knowledge. Um, but, but some of the things we found teachers that are using it was that there were great opportunities to have these conversations with students. Um, from different areas of, of SOHICOM. So some of these conversations happen sort of one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, teacher coming behind a student that's working on and then uh, having some discussions that way. Uh, and many of these can also happen like in a format. Um, so, so expanding SOHICOM to uh, allow teachers to use it in a whole group setting, setting um, mm -hmm. guide discussions, and um, kind of following a lot of, a lot of uh, research on effective uh, teaching strategies. So, is there a uh, is there a community or an online resource where people can go to learn more about this and find out what other teachers are doing and how they're utilizing it in their classroom, or um, a, a, a website or something? Um, you know, we uh, that's a. Great question, and um, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, stomping myself in the foot now. I'm like, man, we need to come up with uh, so uh, at sogicom.com. We have some general information there. We have a, a resources area. Once you created uh, an account and sort of signed up, so. Teacher, and after the 30-day pre-trial, you can log in and still have access to um, some materials, such as these resources. So we've had teacher teachers that create the resources of how they're using Mokicom in their classroom. So we have them videotape their classroom, um, not only for the math portion, but they have a classroom management uh, program, and, and they sort of videotape how they're using that with their classroom. So those resources are available. Um, but uh, something that we should do. Um, is uh, develop more of a community where teachers can share um, how they're using it in their classroom and strategies. Yeah, you know, best practices sort of thing, or what what successes they found, that kind of stuff. Well, there you go. There, there's my recommendation for the next uh, the next angle on product development. Um, All right. If are are you on Twitter? If uh, if people want to follow you and your work, can they? Uh, how, how do they? How do they follow what you're doing? So we uh, we're on Twitter um, uh, at Sokicom, um, and then I'm also on Twitter uh, at Sam Patel. Um, 
I've got to be uh, honest, we're not as um, uh, frequent in, in uh, tweeting as, as we uh, could be. Okay. Uh, but you can kind of uh, keep in touch with us there, or you can email us, um, and I'll send you my email. It's, uh, it's Nehal, P-S-N-E-H-A-L-P, at Sokicom.com. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll post that on the website if people want to find out more and uh, check out uh, check out the game and, and how it might work for their kids. Snehal, we're up against our hour, and uh, I, I really appreciate the time. Really interesting stuff. You've got some great stuff going on, and uh, I look forward to watching how it evolves in the future. Um, thanks for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and um, thank you for for having me. And uh, isn't that awesome? That, uh, the White House is pushing games, man. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, we'll we'll see how that plays out in the future. A billion questions in a year. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what that looks like. Yep. This has been uh, another episode of Reboot Ed. Uh, thanks again to Snehal Patel for uh, spending some time and sharing his views on games and and the work he's doing. Um, and uh, we'll catch you with another guest uh, down the road. Thanks very much. Music by Kevin McLeod.